0: When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectable greetings in the marketplaces. "'Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, "'which people walk over without knowing it.'" One of the experts in the law answered him, "'Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also.'" Jesus replied, "'And you experts in the law, "'Woe to you, because you load people down "'with burdens they can hardly carry, "'and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. "'Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets.'" From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely. And to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had a, a very difficult conversation with someone over dinner or lunch or a meal? I'm sure that you have. Or known that someone's going to have a difficult conversation with you. And you're driving to the appointment and you're jittery, you're nervous. And, of course, most of us have been on both sides of this equation, and neither are e- easy. You get to the appointment, and you, you make small talk for as long as possible, trying to stave off the inevitable challenge, the inevitable conversation that's going to happen. And then the moment comes, and either you or they lay it on the table, and you get uncomfortable, and you get fidgety, you want to leave, maybe you even get mad. what do you do afterwards after you kind of cover that subject matter after they've kind of had their way or you've had your way and you're safe do you just start shooting the breeze again does it become comfortable all of a sudden do you try and make a joke to kind of get past that get through it get get this difficulty behind you or do you just pay the bill and get out of there as fast as you can well, I often wonder what Jesus does afterwards, after he has these insulting conversations with these Pharisees. We saw one back in chapter 7. He comes to the Pharisees' home. He's invited in, and he throws everything into disarray because of what he says. It's the same thing happening here. But Luke chooses to exclude all of this, and it's so frustrating. I really wish I knew what, what would Jesus do after these hard conversations. He consistently ruins dinner parties. (laughs) He gets invited to people's home and then he insults them. What happens next? Well, it's obvious that the Pharisees were incensed. It says that they begin to plot to, to catch him. But he doesn't tell us, were they embarrassed? Did they fidget in their seats? Did it just go silent and no one said anything else? What happened next? We don't know. But we do know that once Jesus eventually left, that they began to plot his downfall. They began to scheme for his destruction. Maybe you've experienced one of these dinner conversations that's been so bad that the relationship has never been able to recover from it. And that's what this is. That's what this episode is portraying. Jesus here, by insulting the religious leaders, has sealed his fate we're going to look at this passage just from this perspective. Four masks, the four masks that he takes off of the Pharisees, that he reveals what is underneath the masks, and then one truth. Four masks and one truth. But before we do that, let's pray for our time together. Jesus, the word tells us that you are good beyond all measure, and yet you say some very difficult things in fact insulting things and if we were there at that dinner party we would be insulted and if we read this rightly we will be insulted because you're stepping on our self-righteousness you are pointing out how we hide how we manipulate how we cover how we evade the truth this is not what we want to hear this morning but it's what we need to hear so i pray that you would give us ears to hear you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Father, would you change us at the very depths of our personhood? Would we be able to see the gospel afresh? Would we be able to see you? And as we just sang, give praise to you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So four masks. Do you have a no-shoe no shoe policy in your home? Well, I grew up in a very shoe-friendly house. And I don't remember anyone, my parents, my brother, certainly not me, walking around our home without shoes on. Walking around in socks. It's not what I'm accustomed to, but I don't really like feet all that much. And I don't really like socked feet. I like those even less. Socks are like little underwear for feet, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. So I have, always have on shoes, even when I'm just hanging out watching TV, Katie will tell me, get your shoes off the couch, but I don't take them off so I can be comfortable, I usually just keep them on. Uh, it's more comfortable. I don't like stubbing my toe, I don't like seeing my shoe, my feet in socks, and who knows, I might need to go outside, or fight off a defender, an intruder, or escape a, a zombie apocalypse, who knows, you need to be prepared, and you can't do that in sock feet. But if I go to your house... And you have a no-shoe policy, I'll take my shoes off. Because that would be impolite. That would be rude to you to disobey the house rules. I'm going to take my shoes off. I certainly don't want to get your very nice carpet marked up with my dirty shoes. But Jesus goes into this home and he keeps his shoes on. He has mud on his feet, as it were. And he walks around on the Pharisees, very white, pristine carpet not quite what he does, but it's very similar. He's rude. He disobeys the house rules. Now, religious people, you should know in this day, they're not talking about just washing to get the germs off their hands. They didn't know much about germs and bacteria back then. They probably washed to get the dirt off and so forth. But this was a ritual washing that Jesus was expected to do and that he, forego- that he did not do. And it's about spiritual purity. That you were supposed to wash your, your hands, baptize your hands, as the passage actually says, so that you would convey that you are spiritually pure, that you are ready to sit at the table with other religious people and talk about God things. But he doesn't take off his shoes, as it were. As it were. He doesn't wash his hands. Now, the host isn't impolite, he doesn't point this out to him, but Jesus knows what he's thinking. And he doesn't just critique this one Pharisee, he dismantles the whole Pharisee enterprise. Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. This is about purity, and it's about a radically different understanding of what purity is actually is, what makes one pure, what makes one holy, what makes one acceptable for worship and presentable before God. Now, God had given the Israelites a a fairly elaborate set of rules, a set of guidelines to follow in order to present themselves to worship that they had to abide by in order to be spiritually pure, ritually cleansed, in order to take part in the community, in order to take part in worship. And they had to abide by those or then suffer the consequences of going and washing and then going and presenting themselves to the priest. It was fairly elaborate. But what it was meant to do, what they were ultimately meant to demonstrate was God's desire that his people have hearts that were clean. None of them who truly understood and truly read the Old Testament law would say, okay, if I do this and that and this and that, then I will be pure and spiritually clean. Not even the Pharisees thought that. That's not what they were talking about. This was about a sign, a symbol of ritual cleansing that made one clean, that pointed to the need of cleansing on the inside. It was never to convey that practicing these made one actually clean. They were just a sign. Or a symbol. And so Jesus isn't censoring the law per se. He isn't censoring the Old Testament and saying that it has no value, but he is, he is censoring the way that the Pharisees has, have elaborated on the rules, that they have expanded on the rules and say, well, if, if I should do this then that, and that's good, well, I should go even farther. I should wash at every meal. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've missed the point. You've missed the point. You've taken something that is good, something meant to the, that is meant to point to the ideal life and point to your need of internal spiritual cleansing, and you've made it a tool for your own vanity. You've made it a tool of your own self-righteousness. And what Jesus is doing is he is pulling back the veneer. He is taking off their mask of purity. What he is saying is Pharisees. You wear a mask of purity that hides the fact that you have a heart that doesn't value the very thing that the purity laws were supposed to point to. You've missed the point entirely. He says, though you are very careful, though you are very courteous, though you are very ritually clean on the outside, inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. You've misunderstood. Did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? Don't you know, Pharisees, that what God is trying to drive home with these laws, what he wants is a correspondence between the outside and the inside. What he wants to see is what you promote, what you talk about, what you advertise about yourself is corresponding with a changed heart with a heart that loves what the purity laws pointed to to begin with, with a heart that loves justice and mercy, that loves God, that there's a correspondence between those two things. Now, the Pharisees have gotten a bad rap because they didn't think as basely as just, if I do this, then God will love me. What they were talking about, what they were interested in, was a community that was made pure. They were wanting to bring the, bring the Messiah in by having a kingdom, by having a community that was so pure, that was so cleansed of, of evil, that God would say, okay, now is the time. That was the basics, basis of the, the, the Pharisees' enterprise. Now, notice the words that Luke uses, that he assigns here. There's a fool, or fools, and there's a Lord. Notice How it's so opposite of what we have normally think. The fools are the ones who are upholding the community standards. The fools are the ones sustaining the law of the land and looking out for bad behavior. He calls them fools. But the Lord transgresses the law of the community. He transgresses traditional standards. He transgresses and intentionally provokes the moral gatekeepers of the community. I wonder if we've really wrestled with this fact. With this aspect of who Jesus is, the way that he changes what is the definition of what is pure and good and holy, and what a good and holy community looks like. The highly religious are wanting to promote public virtue, and of course, why not? They're good, respectable people, and in a way, we should want that as well. They're wanting to uphold honorable behavior, to have what pleases God codified into law. And then Jesus comes into their home with muddy feet and walks on their carpet. And said, this whole enterprise is a sham. You look clean on the outside, but I can see inside. And you're dirty, you're greedy, you're evil, and wicked. But then he goes farther. Not only do they misunderstand what real purity is. Not only do they draw the boundaries of what makes one clean and unclean in a wrong place. He says, they themselves infect other people. They themselves make other people unclean. In verse 44, he says, you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Now, what does that mean? What is he getting at there? Is he saying that your project, your spiritual project is dead instead of alive? Well, that's part of it by implication. But that's not exactly what he's getting at. What he is doing is he is leveling a very specific devastating accusation to them that they would understand. The point of the purity laws was to keep you from being unclean, from being defiled, and you had to be symbolically clean to come into the worship of God's people. And you could become ritually unclean by doing a number of things, by eating the wrong type of meat, the wrong animal, or if you had a disease or an ailment, you could become unclean, or by touching something that was dead. Now, this seems fairly archaic and strange to our ears, but what God is doing is using something very practical, very real-life concepts to enable people to see their sin, to see how they could never earn standing before God. And what he is telling the Pharisees is that not only have you missed the point, not only are you drawing the boundaries in the wrong place, not only that, but you've become the very thing that you're trying to avoid. You've become the dead person. And when anyone encounters you, they become unclean. It's devastating. He takes off their mask of purity and says, all of your ritualized behavior amount to nothing, zero. In fact, they're a negative because they belie what lies at your heart. First of all, he takes off their mask of purity. Then their mask of devotion. Devotion. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Now, Jesus continues to drill down into this idea of purity and what makes one clean, and he chooses this issue of almsgiving. Now, almsgiving, it doesn't correspond exactly with what we consider giving to charity or even a tithe. It wasn't giving to a cause or a donation necessarily, but it was an expression of genuine solidarity with the poor and the needy. It was saying, as you gave, that I am just like them, that I deserve nothing before God, and I give to poor, to those who are in poverty because I was once in spiritual poverty and God made me rich. It is giving a sign of, of social st- solidarity with them. In other words, it's embracing those in need as if they were part of your very own family, if they are part of your, as if they were part of your group. The purpose was to do justice. Almsgiving was to bring justice forth. It was to bring what God wanted to bear on the community, to put what was gathered in the hands of the few into the hands of the entire community to provide, first of all, for the Levites, that the tithe went to what would now correspond with the church that the tithe went to support the church, the work of the religious establishment, the community, so that God's purposes could be brought to bear on that community. And then secondarily, they supported the needs of the poor, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. But what does this part about rue and mint and garden herbs get at? What does that mean? These were not required to be tithed on. You see, the Pharisees at that point had written additional laws, and they had gone beyond what God had said needed to be tithed on. And it said, well, if this is good, we need to tithe on this and that and all of these extra things. Giving to them, almsgiving, was no longer about bringing in justice, about collapsing that distance between the rich and the poor, between, in in fact, them and other people. But it was done to differentiate them from the rest. Billy Graham tells the story of sitting in church, and the um, the offering plate comes by, and he takes out a bill which he thinks is a ten, but it 's really a twenty and He puts the twenty in the offering plate, and then he realizes his mistake, and he goes to reach and grab it back so that he can exchange it and Ruth, his wife, slaps his hand and he says, "What I gave a ten and a twenty instead of a ten and she says that Well, he says, I meant to put in a 10. And she says, in God's eyes, it is a 10, Billy. (laughs) Jesus strips off their mask of devotion that's hiding a greedy, wicked heart. And then he takes off the mask of self-importance. "'Woe to you, Pharisees,' verse 43, "'because you love the most important seats in the synagogues "'and respectful greetings in the marketplace.'" Now, we should see that, that woe is not strictly a curse. He's not simply cursing them. What he is saying to them is, "'Pharisees, I am deeply troubled for you. "'I fear the direction your life is taking.'" I fear the coming judgment that is coming upon you for the way that you are thinking and living. And your propensity to advertise yourself shows that you're missing the point. The laws as they were written were meant to draw you Pharisee away from yourself and into God's arms. They are meant to draw you to lose yourself in the worship of God, to displace yourself on the throne of life and to reckon God now as your new Lord and new king. That's the purpose of the law. And if you're following the law and it doesn't do that, then you're doing it wrong. It's as simple as that. What the Pharisees were doing was they were busy securing their own honor. They were busy being the center of attention, using the mask of self-importance to hide their own deficiencies and insecurities. How much of your life is given to this how much energy do you give to your own self-promotion, either in real life or on the web? How much energy do you give to making sure people know that it was, it was you and not your spouse who cleaned the kitchen? It was you who graduated from that elite institution. It was you who heard the cool new band first. It was you who voted for the person who was the winning candidate. How much of your time, your mental energy, how much of your heart is given to those things? To self-advertisement, to securing the best seats in the house. When we see these practices at work in our lives, it's not just ugly. It's telling us something about ourselves. It's telling us something about what we believe to be significant about us. It's telling us something about our insecurities, pride, And self-important are normally masks that we use to hide things that we feel ashamed about, things that we use to hide uncertainty about our lives, things that we don't like about ourselves. And it shows that in that area, at least, that Jesus' message, that his gospel, that his free offer of salvation hasn't sunk down quite deeply enough. He takes off the Pharisees' mask of self-importance. And then finally, the mask of evasion, that he strips away the mask of evasion. One of the experts in the law answered him, "'Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also.' Jesus replied, "'And you experts in the law, woe to you too, "'because you, had, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, "'and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. "'Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, "'and it was your ancestors who killed them.'" So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. He's not saying here that they're directly responsible for their parents' sins. What he's saying is that you're no different than them. You are just like your parents. The sins that infected their lives infect yours as well. They killed the prophets and ignored their message, and you kill the prophet and ignore his message. The lawyers were supposed to adjudicate justice. They were supposed to bring God's presence to bear upon the law, upon the community standards. They were supposed to show people what God wanted and how to walk into His presence. But they're leading people away they're continuing to do exactly what their forefathers did. They killed the prophets, the prophets that came preaching repentance. Turn from self importance, turn from evasion, turn from all of these ways that you're seeking to promote yourself and put yourself on the throne. Repent and be made whole. Repent and be granted salvation. That was the message that the prophets were bringing and that's the message that Jesus is bringing. Their parents, their forefathers killed the prophets and now they're repeating the sins of their fathers. They are killing the prophet. They will kill the prophet because they reject his message. Now, one truth. Four ways we evade God, four mass that... Jesus takes off of the Pharisees' face that he wants to take off of your and mine. Four ways that we evade the truth, that we use sleight of hand, that we evade uh, other people seeing who we really are. And then there's one truth, one truth. You remember Ted Haggard? Ted Haggard a few years ago was in the news quite a lot. He was the pastor of a very large church. He was the president of a huge national organization, he had a seemingly uh, happy family, a, a lovely wife that he shared most of his life with. He was pure. He was clean, at least by the community standards. And then it was discovered that he was buying drugs and paying for male prostitutes. And all of a sudden, he became the punchline of late-night jokes. He was a, went from a, being a pillar in his community to a pariah overnight. He lost his job. He lost many of his friends. He lost his reputation. But he also lost something that you and I often need to lose, and that's our pride. That's our illusion of control over life, an illusion that we can manipulate God by our own behavior. If you fast-forward a few years later, He was invited to a big conference to share about what God had been doing in his life in the last number of months to bring him to repentance, to bring him to see how he had been a Pharisee, how he was evading what God really wanted to do in and through his life. And it was kind of a comeback home moment for Ted Haggard because he was invited once again to speak in a public way about who Jesus is. It was a large auditorium. And as he stood up to talk a third of the people got up and walked out. They probably felt that they were taking a stand for Christ, but when they left the building, I doubt that Jesus went with them. He was probably there. He stayed back and was rejoicing with the repentance of Ted Haggard. There were probably some in the audience that didn't know what to do. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stand up and walk out so as to say that God really cares about sin and He really cares about making sure we understand that? Or should I stand with Ted Haggard because I understand the gospel and I want him to understand it as well. I want to offer him this community forgiveness. They probably didn't know what to do, but hiding and outward goodness portraying that that's what's important about other people, almost killed Ted Haggard. And it will kill you too. It will kill you if that's the way that you go about life. If what's important to you is what other people think and the facade that you're able to maintain, and if what's important to you is how well you perform in order to get God to like you, it will kill you. And you will continue to become more and more of a shell of a person And you'll turn inside and turn toward yourself and turn away from other people. Now, of course, I don't know Ted Haggard's heart. I don't know how genuinely repentant he is. But signs say that through his downfall, through ruining his life, he was finally forced to stand before God without any chips to cash in. His big church, his healthy marriage, his financial security, his public reputation, all gone overnight. He had nothing left to gather up before God and say, God, please love me because of this. Look what I've done for you. Would you please answer my prayer? Look at how well I've behaved as I lay this at your altar. Would you please come and rescue me from this? He had no, no chips to cash in. He had nothing to negotiate with. He had no leverage over God anymore. He never had it to begin with, but he had finally lost the illusion of control. He finally knew that if life was a test, he'd failed. But here's the good news, friends. Life is not a test. Life is a rescue mission from God. Verse 41, but now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Sounds like a test, but it's not. It's good news because what the verse literally says is give the inward things as alms. Remember what we said about alms? They were a way of aligning yourself with God and His purposes. They were a a way of bringing justice to bear upon the earth. By giving, you were aligning yourselves with others. You were collapsing the distance between you and others. There was no perch left to stand on because you were just as needy, just as poor, just as sinful as everyone else. The giving of alms from your heart means that you have aligned your heart with God and His purposes. You have given what is most significant and what is most fundamental to God and His purposes. Following the rules, friends, cleans the outside of the cup. But Jesus says you need to be clean on the inside. By giving alms of your heart, you are saying, Jesus, cleanse me. I want to be made clean. I can't cleanse myself. I can do a pretty good job with the outside cup, but it will kill me and collapse me on the inside. I need you to make me clean. I need you to make me new from the inside. Therefore, when I do give to the, to the poor, it is out of an overflow. It is because I am so thankful for what you have done in my own heart in ending my spiritual poverty. What Jesus is saying is align your heart with me. Give your heart over to God and everything else will be made clean I will make you clean Jesus says nothing you can do can cleanse yourself but I can make you perfectly clean the commands of God are not a test they're not a trial that you get through and then God approves of you and he claps for you and he pats you on the back that's not what they're there for they're part of the rescue mission Not only do they show you how to live, how to live in a whole and a healthy way, but they also point to you, point you to your need for cleansing, point me to my need for cleansing. The reality about Ted Haggard's process and his story is that he was no more needy for cleansing when the truth came out than he was before. He just realized it more. He finally saw himself as he really was rather than how he presented himself. He finally had the curtain pulled back, and everyone saw what was already true of him. But he was so good at keeping up a facade, and I bet you are too, and I am as well. And what Jesus says is, please, let me take off that mask. Let me pull back the curtain. Let yourself be seen for who you are. You can spend the whole li- your whole life cleaning the outside of the cup, wearing masks, keeping secrets, but it will make you sick and dead inside. But bring your secrets to Jesus, and he'll make you clean. He doesn't love the pure version of you. He doesn't love the future version of you. He doesn't love the version of you that will happen once you get your act together. He created you to be who you are and loves you in the moment if you will let him take hold of you. Give to the poor because you were once poor. Be content with the humble place because Jesus has given you the best place. He has invited you into the very presence of God. Repent and believe the gospel because it will make you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these hard words and I pray that they would sink in in all of the ways that we need them to. I pray that you would not only show us our sin, but you would help us to repent. Father, take the little seed of repentance, the little seed of earnestness, and would you turn it into something greater? Would you use it to truly change us, change us, to bind up what is broken, to give us a heart and mind that is after what you are after in our own lives and in the lives of others and in the lives of our community? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.